Hi, this is Joe Huggins with the Rocky Mountain Myrick uh, Short Takes on Suicide Prevention Podcast here at AAS 2018. And we've asked um, Joe Franklin, an assistant professor at Florida State University, and Jess Rivero, also an assistant professor at Florida State to um, join us for this podcast because one of the things that we've seen is that it seems like with suicide prevention research, we've gotten to maybe a wall or we've gotten to a place where maybe the numbers aren't changing that much. And when the AAS program came out, um, I read their blurbs about their talks, and it seemed like they were – headed in a a new direction, a different direction. So that's why they're here. And I'm just going to kick it off by asking uh, Joe if he can follow up on that. Sure. So for us, just like many other people in the field, what we've seen is a lot more stagnation than we'd like. And we spent a lot of time conducting a lot of studies to try and advance things forward. And then for both of us, we became a little bit frustrated So then we started conducting meta-analysis to try and get a better sense of where the field as a whole actually seemed to be. And we thought, for example, that five or six things might kind of pop out as being really important for predicting and maybe even causing suicidal thoughts and behaviors. And then maybe the field could then kind of take those sorts of things and run with it a little bit. But what we found was actually pretty surprising and shocking to us, and that's that Nothing out of the hundreds of things that have been used to try to predict suicidal thoughts and behaviors over the last 50 years actually predicted much better than random chance. And somewhat surprisingly, though, hundreds of things predicted future suicidal thoughts and behaviors just slightly better than random chance. And so that's kind of the central driving pattern of a lot of our work from the past, I'd say, uh, three or four years. And so... Much of what we've done since then and much of our thinking since then has really been based off of that pattern. So why haven't we found that any one big thing predicts much better than random guessing, but hundreds of things do predict slightly better than random guessing? And for a lot of that and trying to figure out how to advance prediction, try to understand suicide, we've hit on the idea that the causes and predictors of suicide are complex, meaning that you're probably going to need a very large number of factors put together in order to really account for the causes. And it's also indeterminate, meaning that there's no one specific set recipe for predicting or determining the causes of suicidal thoughts and behaviors. And from that, uh, Jess Rivero's work has really used something called machine learning in order to go beyond traditional statistics to actually be able to take advantage of the capabilities of some new technologies in order to actually model that complexity and indeterminacy a lot better. Okay, well, let's take it from there. And Jess, can you tell us a little bit about your work? So like Joe, um, I found the results of our meta-analysis or series of meta-analyses really sobering and at the same time really exciting, um, especially when we sort of pivoted and looked at Uh, methods like machine learning that could better model complexity and found that really this um, application of machine learning took us from accuracies of at coin flip levels of around 0.5 to accuracies of 0.8 and 0.9 and a lot of my recent work and uh, along with Joe and and some colleagues 
at Vanderbilt University Medical Center have really tried to translate um, these machine learning based algorithms into um, really accurate and scalable tools um, that could be used on the ground. So some of our work has started to really take um, things from a, a theoretical level and develop tools that we could put in place now because we're very, very aware of the fact that um, even though it's great to sort of shift directions every day, there are a substantial portion of people dying and attempting suicide. So actually translating those tools has been sort of a new new direction in that domain for us. Thank you. So this idea of machine learning um, for our audience, for myself, what does that actually mean? Machine learning is actually uh, many, many things. Basically, it's based on the idea that systems can learn from data, recognize patterns in data, and make decisions about data with very minimal human interaction. And it functions a little bit differently than our conventional approaches do in terms of, like, statistically. Um, Before the advent of machine learning, basically, we were relying on humans to look at data and make sense of it and say, you know, I believe that this model best fits the data. And what we find with suicide, something that's so complex, is that it's hard for us to cognitively imagine the level of complexity that's probably involved. So in machine learning, it's a little bit reversed, where we basically say we're looking for this outcome. So we're looking for, you know, this These people attempted suicide, these people didn't. And here are the factors that I'm interested in that I think are relevant. And you allow the machine to be exposed to that data and it sort of iteratively uh, maps on the optimal um, function between the input variables and the output. So essentially you let the machine learn what algorithm best fits the data rather than letting humans try to trial and error um, figure it out because we're not very good when, when something's pretty complex. And when you talk about that, you talk about the the data that is input. What do we mean by data in this case? So machine learning can solve a variety of problems um, and can be applied to a, a large set of, of data, depending on the question that you have. In the field of prediction, a lot of folks have been oriented to the fact that we don't only need accurate prediction, we need scalable prediction. And machine learning is only scalable when you apply it to large data sets that are widely available. And so for us, um, in suicide, that means things like electronic health record data, um, social media data to a lesser extent, but EHR data we know is widely available. Applying machine learning to those systems of data uh, lets us have... um, potentially a tool that we could implement widely across healthcare settings. And so that's been the focus, but machine learning can be applied to a variety of data sources, depending on the question that you have. Okay. So machine learning can be applied to, to these large, the data sets from uh, electronic health record, the EHR. And so it's taking a look at data that's already been entered. Help me understand how a clinician might then use that for the future or for the person who's coming in 15 minutes from now for my next appointment? Great question because that's really kind of the end point and what we've been concerned about all along, although we kind of have to travel through the wilderness in order to be able to get there. And so we're not 
quite there just at yet and being able to deliver something that tomorrow we can give clinicians to, to really, really use. But the, the first thing I'll note again is that we were both trained and, and brought up in kind of the standardized traditional type risk assessment and working with our clients and saying, you know, here's a tool and here's a list of questions that you ask in order to determine whether or not someone is truly at risk and what degree of risk they might be at. And what we found with those meta-analyses that we talked about was that actually those as well aren't much better than random guessing. And so that's another thing that's really motivated us to try to find something different for um, both the, the patients and the clinicians who are in that situation very much wanting the best possible outcome. And so in order to, to do that has been a lot of the basic machine learning work that Jess has talked about where our group and, and now several other groups as well have been working on. And what many, like our group as well as at least a, a couple of others have been doing now is saying, how can we take the, the next step? And the answer within that is really developing what are called um, clinical decision support tools which are taking the information from the algorithms and programs and so forth and being able to translate it into something that clinicians can access and that they can actually use and that they want to use and that makes sense to them, that doesn't just say an algorithm says X, you know, good luck. It's something that might say, you know, here's a, the level of risk that the algorithm suggests based on the limited set of information that it has. Based on this level of risk, we might suggest you know doing X, Y, and Z um, in this case, and you know potentially asking further questions and checking in. There's a whole sort of science around what you might do about this. But in short, we're hopefully over the next couple of years going to be able to bridge this gap and being able to take this new technology and to have it available for clinicians and something that they can actually use and, and benefit from. And so just to piggyback off that, um, to clarify, because a lot of people have concerns that they're going to have to enter new data or they're going to be sort of um, faced with numbers that don't seem to make a lot of sense to them. Um, and that, that's not the case. Really, ideally, we want to build a tool, for instance, could be a red alert that pops up within um, you accessing a patient's electronic health record that has, you know, the level of risk and the attendant management strategies that basically is more uh, as seamlessly fitting into your existing workflow as possible. So that tool might look different for a primary care provider versus a mental health provider. The actions people that we might recommend might look different depending on a person's training. And so that user-centered element, um, understanding that is a whole other science uh, that that needs to be incorporated. But I just wanted to clarify, clarify that point that it's not an additional burden to the clinician and that we would also be training clinicians to know um, that this isn't a black box to really understand how we're deriving these risk scores so that they're essentially, um, they buy into the, um, the potential benefits of, of using an approach like this over the conventional. It would really be... We're, we're doing some things with uh, shared decision-making in which um, you're really engaging the client, be a participant in where do we go from here. Is that how, how, how you see it? Yeah, on the level of providers. So, yeah. Certainly, I think that's critical, at least for our group. Other groups have um, might have different views on this, but but for us, um, 
because these this isn't unique to suicide. This isn't a unique problem in this field. The application of machine learning um, and the development of clinical decision support systems or tools um, extends beyond psychology into medicine that's been doing this for a while. And um, what we know is that there have been a lot of great accurate tools uh, developed that are just never used by providers. And the biggest um, misstep, in my opinion, is to not get provider buy-in and understand um, what their needs are and sort of develop a tool that's very user-centered. And so for us, that's a, a critical component, like really understanding where the providers are and how best to meet their needs and integrate this as seamlessly as possible into their existing workflows. Taking it out of what you were saying, the the black box and making it um, transparent as much as possible. Okay, well, thanks on the, the machine learning part of it. I think I'm starting to grasp a little of that. Um, any other directions that you're really excited about? I'd say one in particular for us concerns suicide causes. And so it's a, a pretty common misconception that Prediction and cause are essentially the same thing, but in, in fact, they're a, a good bit different. And so information that we might gain from a lot of our predictive studies could be helpful leads for understanding what really causes suicide, but in many ways, it could be irrelevant. Uh, for example, one of the strongest predictors of future suicide death is prior psychiatric hospitalization. And from that, we wouldn't conclude that psychiatric hospitalization causes suicide death or that you know, psychiatric hospitalization should be a treatment target that we should reduce or, or anything like that. So there are some differences within that. But unlike most fields in medical science and in psychology outside of suicide, whenever you're wanting to determine cause, it's pretty easy. You just run an experiment, and then you see the effect on whatever variable that you're interested in, whether it's anxiety or cooperation or risk-taking or whatever it might be. Now, obviously, ethically, you can't do that in suicide research because you can't, for example, reject someone and then see if that makes them more likely to engage in future suicidal behavior. And this has been a, a big problem for our field for a while because most of our theories are actually about cause, and it's hard to really see who's right and who's wrong, or maybe everybody's a little bit right and everybody's a little bit wrong. It's difficult to really figure that out without actually being able to run experiments to kind of compare things and to really see what might actually play a causal role. And so what we hit upon a couple of years ago was you can't run experiments with actual suicidal behaviors as outcomes, but it may be possible to do so with virtual suicidal behaviors as outcomes. Obviously, this would be limited in what we call ecological validity, so you couldn't run this study and then say, well, this is firm proof that X, Y, or Z causes but it can get you a lot closer and you can make a lot more confident inferences than you can with a prediction study or a correlational or descriptive type study. And so the work that we've been doing for the past couple of years is trying to develop virtual reality scenarios that may allow us to conduct those sorts of experiments. And we've actually had some success in that and hopefully over the next year we'll be able to really start making theory-based tests of things. But right now we're pretty excited that we may actually have the capability and we can um, basically allow a lot of other labs to use this as well to have a way to actually test some of our ideas about the potential causes of suicidal behaviors. I'll just add too that I'm particularly um, excited about this avenue because it's not um, just relevant to, to theory but also to interventions. And so in order to develop a really 
an intervention that has a really strong chance uh, of working, we need to understand the mechanisms at play. And um, because we haven't been able to do really rigorous experiments, we haven't been able to do that. So we've sort of been looking for things in the dark a bit. And I think this kind of approach really allows us to shine a light on those mechanisms more directly than we have before. Um, because those, the field, in my opinion, is also woefully in need of, of more powerful treatments. Yeah, so just to piggyback on that, um, this definitely could help us identify more confidently potential treatment targets and to understand more about how that works. And along with that, it may be possible to use this as kind of a preclinical tool. So in a lot of areas, like with pharmaceuticals, before you start running trials on humans, which are very long and costly, potentially dangerous and, and quite expensive, You'll often test this out on animals, for example. So they're kind of your preclinical model of how to test your treatment. Now, with virtual suicidal behaviors, that could kind of stand in as a preclinical model. Like, let's say that you develop a treatment and you want to test it out. Well, one option is to try and get grant funding and to go basically what would amount to about a decades-long process just to see, does it kind of work or does it not kind of work? Because it takes so long to run a trial and to recruit enough people with these sorts of outcomes. Another option would be to develop your treatment and then to test it out to see how it influences virtual suicidal behaviors. And if you feel like you're getting a nice effect there, well, then that may be rationale to actually test it out in real people kind of out in the real world. And so in that way, it may be able to help us accelerate our treatment development and evaluation process as well. That really sounds fascinating. Can I ask you what that would look like in a lab or... Are you at a place where you can describe it? Yeah, sure. So the, the basics are that about two years ago, a few companies released kind of commercially available VR equipment. So these are things that you can go out right now and buy for about $400 or so, which is relatively inexpensive compared to what you might think. And what this does is that with just a, a couple of basically what amount to virtual reality cameras across your room over about a 25-foot by 25-foot area, you can have those and then just put on a headset. And basically what it looks like is someone wearing uh, about a two-pound headset kind of walking around, flailing about, because what they see is an environment that appears very realistic, but what you see is them looking kind of strange inside of a room. And so that's basically what our, our lab looks like. It's this uh, someone with a headset on with these kind of nondescript, very tiny cameras or base stations in the corners, and then we're able to run all kinds of virtual reality scenarios, and the ones that we're using are actually available to anybody. Some of them are free and some of them are just $5 because what we do is that we don't spend hundreds of thousands of dollars developing our own virtual reality scenarios. We're able to take already available scenarios that people have created and repurposing them for you know, basically trying to model virtual suicidal behaviors. For example, one of the most popular ones is a heights scenario, and so what happens is that you begin the scenario and you appear on a busy city street and then if you so choose then you can walk a few feet and get into an elevator and ride up uh, a few hundred feet and then the elevator doors open and what you see below you if you would step out then you would fall to your virtual death or you can get back in the elevator and just go back down and so one of our scenarios is kind of built around that to um, determine who would actually make the decision to step out of that elevator and, and fall to their death and under what conditions you may be able to get um, a lot of people to sort of do that, to investigate the causes of suicidal behaviors. 
For example, if you experimentally reject someone in the lab and then put them in this scenario, are they more likely to decide to step out of the elevator and, and fall to their virtual death? So I guess in essence, what um, we're trying to do is um, expose individuals to um, potentially lethal means and seeing um, under what conditions they might act. And so the range of potentially lethal means, whether it be heights or something else, is is pretty broad in VR. Um, okay, so people are in these scenarios, and is it, I mean, so earlier today, Matt Nock talked about IAT and this, um, yeah, that a person who has this millisecond score might show more inclination towards um, associating death with themselves. Now, is this anywhere along those lines, or is it, am I way off base here? Yeah, so you can connect it, uh, what we're most excited about, you can kind of connect this to almost anything anyone has ever thought about with suicide. For example, it's long been believed that just feeling more sad makes people more likely, so we can actually test that out. It's been believed that people who have a particular association between themselves and death are more likely, so we can actually now test that out. And those are open empirical questions. And with IAT in particular, is it just sort of a, a correlate? Um, could it actually be caused by having a history of suicidal thoughts and behaviors? Or does having that particular association make you more likely to engage in future suicidal thoughts and behaviors, or is it a little bit of both kind of thing? And with experiments, you can actually start to try and disentangle those associations and, and figure that out. And what we found just in our very early sort of experiments is that 90-something um, percent of people will not choose to, you know, for example, step out of that elevator to their virtual deaths um, if you put them in kind of a, a neutral situation or scenario. People who do decide to do that are people who tend to be high in fearlessness and suicidal capability and risk-taking and so forth. And the people who don't decide to do that, we ask them specific questions about why. And the number one endorsed reason is that they're just not the kind of person who would ever do that, meaning would ever engage in virtual suicidal behaviors, and that they couldn't imagine any scenarios under which they would ever engage in virtual suicidal behaviors. But what we found just and kind of testing this out to see if we can get movement on those virtual suicide rates is that if you incentivize someone by, for example, um, paying them $20 if they choose the virtual suicide option, then now about 30% of people will go ahead and, and do that. And so that's not a part of any theory or anything. That's just to show that you can take people who otherwise would say, I would never, ever do that, and then put them in a slightly different situation where they're incentivized and a much larger proportion will say, okay, well, now I can justify doing this. And what we think is that's kind of a sort of a baseline model to doing things like rejecting people or inducing negative feelings or um, testing out things like someone's association between themselves and death and altering that and seeing how that might influence their decision to engage in the virtual suicidal behavior or to not engage in that behavior. Well, that brings up all sorts of things to mind, but I think we'll have to set that aside um, for now. Um, in closing, we'd like to ask um, both, of, oh, we'll ask both of our guests, any closing thoughts, anything? Well, I guess I'll uh, just say that I'm, I, for one, am really excited about um, the changes that are happening um, in the suicide field. I hope that we continue to challenge 
um, the conventions that we've long held on to, um, to really step back and ask some basic questions that we've taken for granted, because what we're finding is that what we, we thought was the case, unfortunately, in many cases is not. And if we keep asking those kind of questions, we open up the field for a, no a lot of really um, exciting new directions that could potentially have an effect on, on the bottom line, um, on the thing that we're actually all trying to do, reducing suicidal thoughts and behaviors. And I'll echo that. I think this is a particularly exciting time in suicide research. A lot of the meta-analyses that we've conducted um, you know, four or five years ago now were kind of sad and disappointing for us, but they were also, I think, inspiring for us and I think some other people in the field to say, well, this is where we really are. What can we do to, to really get beyond that? And I think that definitely not only our group, but many others are doing a lot of creative and interesting things to really try to really innovate with an eye toward the bottom line of how can we really improve our understanding of these things? How can we really improve our ability to predict these things? And how can we really improve our ability to prevent those things? And we're hopeful that over the next five to ten years, we really will start to see a lot of fruits of a lot of the ideas and early work that a lot of people are doing um, over the last couple of years. Yes, you definitely are both um, taking us in new directions, and it's all very exciting. So we'll have you back in five to ten years. No, we'll have you back sooner. Thank you. And where can people um, go to learn more about the exciting work that you guys are doing? We both have lab websites that we try to keep updated um, pretty frequently. So uh, mine is risklabfsu.com. Um, that's probably the best uh, place. And I'm always happy to um, connect via email um, and social media. Usually my handles are, are just my name. It's pretty unique. And my website is scitaplab.com. So that's P-S-Y-T-A-P-L-A-B.com. And again, we both try to keep things updated fairly regularly. And I think this summer we'll both be doing a little bit more of that. But you can check out all of our work there and also information on some of our upcoming projects. Great. And of course, we will have uh, links to both of your websites and uh, your work.